This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's probably going to be a while before you get on a commercial aircraft that runs on renewable energy instead of jet fuel. But getting the infrastructure in place to make that sort of thing happen takes a lot of planning, which is why we have organizations like the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. NREL has been working on a study that tries to map out the ways in which land-based aviation infrastructure will need to change to make concepts like electric-powered aircraft practical. Scott Carey is the lead program manager for the lab's ports and airports program. He talked with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what the study's uncovered so far. So where the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is actually helping the FAA is really the the energy implications primarily on the ground. So as we look at this, you've had this evolution moving through light-duty vehicles into heavy-duty vehicles and some industrial vehicles. And now that just amplifies with uh, the operation style that aircraft and aviation needs. So you have a, a mixed fuel environment and you have a high ops tempo environment. And with that comes a request to get energy very quickly into these vehicles so they can be efficient and um, meet their operational needs. So we look at right now what we're doing is advising on kind of the overall safety aspects of working in that environment. And then also um, the economic, the emissions, and uh, what it may look like and what potential use cases might look like from a hospital to a parking garage to a typical airport to a heliport. And so we've we've gathered with the FAA partners in a region to look at those specific use cases and gather the, the data of how they currently work and then compare that with the manufacturers that are already in certification and anonymized look at how they believe they're going to need energy delivered. And how far are you into the assessment process? Are you really just starting to examine these questions or have you made some headway? We made some headway. We're about um, just about a year in at this point, um, doing a significant amount of data collection. So we have six uh, manufacturers that have participated in providing data. Um, We have four sites that amount for five use cases. And it's primarily based on the location of the Hughes Technical Center. We focused around southern New Jersey up to the bottom end of New York. So from Teterboro to Atlantic City with use cases that can fit the ranges of these early adopters. And any surprises so far, any aha moments that you that you feel like sharing? Yeah, in terms of um, some of the kind of observations, one of the, the big things that we picked up is you know, working with a major hospital and talking to their operators, the potential you know, instantaneous demand for power that an aircraft charging on their on their roof might request was very close to their entire load for the hospital. And so in that situation and looking at their operation, you aren't necessarily going to park that vehicle on top of that aircraft for long periods of time. They're generally parked somewhere else and they're really, that's their destination. They drop and they leave. So in that situation, it might not make sense to have a charger. Some of those types of situations and discussions on parking garages and you know what is the clearance in a parking garage? If you choose to say have a mobile charging unit, come into that parking garage, how do you get to the aircraft on the roof? Those are some of the items we're starting to just dig into slightly um, and say, you know, some things to think about for designers and operators as they start to deploy this technology. 
And what kind of time horizons are you looking at here? I mean, I, I imagine we're still quite a ways off from the day when we might have large airline transport aircraft that are electrically powered. But are you looking at what a, a large airport might need to service that kind of that that kind of load? Yeah, and it's uh, here's the key thing is we just had a, a group at the lab called Partner Forum of from large OEMs to uh, airport operators get together and. There's consensus around an industry group called ATAG who put out what they think is going to happen in terms of technology advancement. And what that kind of process says is there's not one solution. If you want to um, make aviation more efficient and also now they want to decarbonize. So you have a combination of SAF, sustainable aviation fuel that will still take on your medium and long haul for the foreseeable future. And then as you move down into what they call short haul, a thousand miles and under, in the near term, the options start to open up. And so electric may have a range up to about 500 miles and say it's 20 seats. Well, hydrogen right now, Zero Avia, is pushing forward on up to a 70 seat aircraft by 2030 with hydrogen. And so each of these use cases will have a different time horizon and viability based, it's mostly based on energy density. You can put a a very large amount of energy density into liquid fuels. And we have a vast infrastructure and aircraft fleet that runs, has been running on kerosene for over a hundred years. So the first option is to use what we can use now, which is to move over to a fuel that looks like kerosene. Um, and that's moving very quickly um, with the great work of DOE and others through the SAF Grand Challenge and other things. And what does that that reality that we're going to be living with mixed fuels for a while and, and need to kind of adapt iter- iteratively, what, what does that mean for an airport operator in terms of uh, how, how they think about managing their facilities? What are the implications of that? Well, the first question that, that comes up is, Who's coming first and what do I need to plan for? They're on 20-year planning horizons. I'm not sure that question's been figured out yet. You have early adopters on the small electric that are starting to go out to airports and say, I will install chargers um, because I want to start testing my aircraft. But as you start to scale and you want to make that public use, then you have to do a little bit more planning. You have to think about you know, what that mix might be and then adapt over time. A component that you know, airports have not had to deal with for a long time, because that we've used essentially petroleum for over 100 years, is working with different energy providers. So that if you have a major upgrade you'd like to do for a large electrical service, try and plan for your 20-year window. And you have an operator that says that we wanna, we wanna be here within the year. Well, a typical major substation upgrade could be two to five years. And so there's a disconnect between the speed that aviation likes to move in terms of getting to market, having the system in place, and what typically is needed to keep that grid working safely and to work through that system. Going back to your hospital example, since the electric demand here is just so enormous, and I'm sure it's true at the airports too, um, you know, it's just far and above what what any of their infrastructure could support today is is it do we basically assume at this point that every one of these once we get to full electric is going to need a whole lot of on-site energy generation 
You know, that if you look at uh, when you just first step back and say we're only talking about roughly 30% of the market or less that would be on electricity. That being said, there is just a massive amount of energy that's stored on airports right now in the form of liquid fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if an airport has a significant amount of, of um, acreage, you know, many are, are World War II uh, conversions. They were built for flight training in World War II. And they may have excess um, or underutilized land that can be used for energy generation. Um, that is an option. Um, but that's not going to be the, there's not going to be one answer because if you live in a, in a area that has very clean and very inexpensive electricity, then it might make more sense to, to, um, collaborate with your utility rather than generate on site. Um, but each of those locations, if you're looking for the most economic and technically feasible, uh, option, because um, ideally, what you want, to, what these operators really want is they want to know what they're going to get charged for fuel, for their energy, and they need that to be fairly consistent. Um, and so, if it's different at every airport based on how it was put in, that can be an incentive or a disincentive to actually operate out of those locations. Gotcha. All right, so let's let's start winding down by talking about what's next and what's ahead. I mean, at what point? Do you feel like you're going to have actionable recommendations to turn over to FAA and that can help in, inform some of these op, airport operators' decisions? Sure. So we are providing essentially analysis. We'll actually publish the results um, of this analysis working with the FAA. Um, we have two initial um, kind of early uh, deliverables that we are putting together, one on cybersecurity and charging and the second on initial hazards analysis related to electric. Those are getting finalized right now. Um, when the FAA is uh, comfortable with those being published, NREL will publish those. Um, and then that will inform inform what FAA, a part of what FAA will do in terms of how they might put out their policy. Uh, beyond that, um, going into I think probably around April of next year will be the final larger report that really dives into the site-specific use cases and potential options that operators and um, airports may want to consider. That's the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, Scott Carey. He leads their Ports and Airports program. We'll post a link to more info at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, 
and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly, you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done, no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.